Welcome to the Humble and Honest Podcast. Hello world, this is Stephen Francis and you're listening to the Humble and Honest Podcast. I'm excited to be here with you today because I believe today's conversation is going to be a powerful one. Today's conversation is with Janai Amen. Janai is a mom of two, wife to one, and book owner of many. She is famous for being a prolific writer and blogger on the website To Till the Soil, a resource for ones who are grieving in the area of Christianity specifically. And she is also the creator of The Wilderness Forum, a private online community for those who are deconstructing or were harmed in Christian environments and advocates who listen. Janai is a survivor of church abuse and makes it her mission to help people who are in similar situations. My conversation with Janai today is understanding church abuse. How is it possible that in an environment where people are supposed to feel the safest, that oftentimes it can be where they experience the most harm? My hope today is not only that all of you guys that are listening will gain knowledge about what is church abuse, how do you identify it, how do you handle it when it's happening, but also that maybe if this is something that you've dealt with personally, you might find some healing today. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Janai Amen. Janai Amen. It is such a pleasure to have you on the Humble and Honest podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, Janai, I am a huge fan of your work. I came across it on Instagram and I feel like this is the most important time for someone like you to be in the platform that you're on. Mm-hmm. That being said, it is also not necessarily a position that people desire to be. It's more of like you end up here and you learn to thrive from here. But I'm obviously talking about something that people may not have full context for. So let's let's start here. Who is Janai Amin and how does she get to the platform she's on today? Yeah, I um, you wouldn't assume it from my name. I feel like my name is kind of like the most multicultural name. Um, I'm actually a born and raised Texan, born and raised in Southeast Texas. I currently live in Houston now, and I've been um, in Houston the last uh, decade plus. And I'll start off with I, I don't really want to be where I am today, but it's where somehow like God has taken me on this particular journey and this is where I've landed. Yeah, I'll start off with saying like I, uh, Texas is in the Bible belt for sure, but I did come to faith eventually. Um, just before I became an adult, I was 17 and came to faith and really started living into that faith. I think I really craved community and the church that I came to faith into did community really well. And so kind of, uh, dove head in or just headlong into living and breathing, you know, what is it to follow Christ? And eventually married my high school sweetheart. We married very young. Um, We were 20, 21, and we moved to Houston. And when we landed in Houston, we were looking for a new church to become a part of because we missed that community. And so Uh, We landed within a church that eventually became a part of the church planting movement. And this is 2009 at the time. And so this is probably kind of the early days of Acts 29 movement, which is the movement we eventually joined. And we were in the Houston suburbs and we um, joined this church plant that was going to move into the city. We wanted to plant a church within the urban core of the city. I think that is like verbatim language that we use to plant the church. And we were there from 2009 to 2020. Uh, So 11 years, the entirety of my 20s. And I would really say that I was totally ride or die um, for the ministry, for the local church. I, I literally thought that I would probably die and have my funeral and be buried on the church grounds um, one day. And I just thought I would be there for the rest of my life. And so 
I mean, my husband and I made, you know, major financial decisions. We moved, we, we sold a house in the suburbs to help plant this church and every kind of decision, major life decision we made, you know, what jobs he got, we're all centered around how can we continue to foster the culture of this local church? And we loved it. And then the wild thing is, and it was, it really was a dream. Um, I wanted to go on staff one day and I did. And so in 2017, I went on staff and all of the good and the beautiful things that I believed in and held fast to were kind of the, the facade started chipping away. And I started to see that not everything was as it should be. And I started entering into just severe conflict. I saw conflict from day one. It's kind of like um, walking into Chernobyl and without knowing that it's Chernobyl and you're just expecting like, oh, this is really a, a grassy plain. It seems like a healthy green place, but really it's radioactive. And I didn't know it was radioactive. And so for three years, I worked on a very unhealthy Unhealthy is a very charitable word. Um, eventually, it was very toxic and abusive church dynamic. And um, at first, I kind of just wanted to fall in line. I wanted to fall in line and do what was asked of me. But I got to the point where what doing what was asked of me started drowning me, and it started burying me, and it started. Um, it really started chipping away at my value and my worth. And um, eventually I started advocating for myself. And it was over the course of advocating for myself, asking for more margin, asking for more um, grace and for more space in my work capacity. Um, It was asking for those things that got me ousted um, because the lead pastor saw my criticisms and concerns as a threat to his leadership model and, and so I was tossed out of a church. And I mean, when you're there for a decade, that really does, it does so much uh, damage to your worth and your personhood. And so we ultimately decided to leave that church. We realized we could no longer trust the men in those positions. And those were men that I had known that, I mean, men that had held my babies and ha- who had visited me and my family on day one, when our kids were born and who were there when my kids took their first steps and they were there for so many um, vital parts of my, my life. And I just could not, I was demolished when they, um, when they treated me in such a way. And so I sat in shame for a very long time, but then um, at the same time I was finishing my degree in uh, behavioral science and realizing um, something is clicking here. And I, for whatever reason, I, I was keeping, you know, behavioral science and psychology separate from what I experienced in this organization and meeting with other people and, and reading other stories. I realized, I think, I think it was toxic and dysfunctional and reading about spiritual abuse and the manipulation and the dehumanization. And I realized, oh my gosh, I, I was subject to that and kind of I grieved that. I grieved that not only could I be treated in that way, but I grieved that I didn't have the ability to discern that that was the environment that I placed myself in. And so I looked for work in 2020 after I was fired. Unfortunately, that's when the lockdowns and everything started happening. So no one was, there were no jobs to be had. Everything was shut down. And so I stopped my husband one day when he was working from home and I said, you know, what would it look like if I just started writing and just tried to write? I'd never done anything like that before. And he said, I think you should do it for the course of over the course of the last year. That's what I've done. I've just written what I've known. And unfortunately, what I've known uh, resonates with so many people. And I think that's why I've gotten the reach that I I have today. And I think my reach is particular in that. I don't want to tear down the faith and I don't want to tear down the American church. I want to denounce the abuse that's happening in the church because I believe in the beauty of the church. And I care for the people who want to know Jesus and who want to continue to know Jesus. So that's kind of where I am today. And that's a flyby of the work that I'm doing today. I absolutely love that. And despite you going through some very unfortunate things, how God is such a redemptive um, author himself and what's been birthed from it, even despite the pain and the difficulty. You know, you mentioned something and I've really connected with it, like the pain that happens when you leave a church 
because there's a level of like, even, even if you leave on good terms, even if it's all like, Hey, you know, the only reason why we're leaving is because of a job opportunity or something has come up. It's always so painful because of the community that's around you. And when you end up having to leave because of that pain that happened, like, there's there's really a rip because like there's people that you used to call that won't call you anymore are are even just like the relationships different now it's just not the same and that can really be hard but i also want to know from you just kind of looking at your life and your story when you look at the abuse that you experienced in this organization in this church do you feel there is a significant difference between what church abuse is and what could be seen in other organizations? Because obviously there's a level of if it's Christian, it should be better, but that's not often the case. But also there does seem to be a little bit of a difference when it happens in a church. Do you have any opinion on that? Yeah, I do. So abuse in any form is just nefarious and untenable. It's inexcusable. It should never happen anywhere. Um, I think what makes abuse within a faith-based environment, and I I, I usually say faith-based environments because it's not isolated to Christian churches. It's also something we see within Christian organizations, even nonprofit or parachurch organizations. But I think what makes it so um, despicable in faith-based organizations is that these intrinsically are organizations that should value your personhood because, you know, if Christ died for all, um, then that means I matter. It means that every single person matters. And in Christian organizations and elite, especially within a church who has shepherds in place to care for the flock, that's where that's what a lot of people assume what will happen is that they will be cared for. And not only that, but they will get to care for others. And so abuse really in all forms leverages trust, um, a person's ability to trust another person. And one person's trust is leveraged to perpetuate some other self-serving agenda, whether that's sexual abuse or um, domestic abuse or financial abuse or emotional abuse. But with spiritual abuse, that messes with your brain in terms of how you make meaning of life. And not only that, but it drags God into it. And so when you're abused within a church, it's very difficult to untangle how God is a part of that abuse. And ultimately, he is not a part of that abuse. But whenever you're abused, you can't. It's hard to see how God is not a part of it when the language of God's people is constantly being preached or used within staff meetings. And so I think that's what makes it very um, tricky and what makes it, um, well, I'll say this, I know that in many therapeutic models um, that therapists and clinicians uh, use is to help someone find healing or to foster healing, they'll actually draw a person, draw on a person's faith system. Like, what does this mean to you about God? But what's so Um, insane is that when you're spiritually abused, any mention of God can be triggering. So you, unlike all other therapeutic models that actually use your faith to help foster healing, it's your faith system that has actually been wounded and has been the perpetuator of just the brokenness. And so you can't, you, you almost have to rewire your brain to realign with what you believe. And that is that is such hard and difficult work. It's hard to believe in general. It's hard to find another pathway um, to be believed, especially when it's people you trusted so deeply and who wanted you wanted to be known by, or you probably were known by, and you assumed your personhood would be valued and it just it just wasn't. And so I think that's the boundaries within other organizations. I think, uh, you know, if I'm thinking private corporations, you know, there's obviously like a hierarchy or a delineation between this is my work, these are my boundaries. But in um, ministry and in faith-based organizations, that gets a little murky because you start talking about family and that family language starts leveraging your trust in a totally different way. That's so interesting. And this is why often... You know, I saw you commented about this. There's a particular pastor, we're not going to put him on blast, that talked about how 
he questioned that if anybody is deconstructing their faith or walking away from their faith, how he questions whether they actually knew Jesus at all. Like in, in, in his definition, if you experience Jesus actually, you wouldn't walk away from him because of some type of deconstruction and basically made it sound like a fad when there is a level of like, no, 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 no. The same person that showed me Jesus was also the same person that really hurt me. That really made me question the same person that made me say yes to Jesus is now the same reason that I don't know if I'm safe. And there's a level of one having to separate who Jesus is. We believe Jesus is perfect. We believe that he's the way, the truth and the life, but also that's very difficult to separate the two. You know, the thing that I think about often as a pastor myself, and as someone that has been in the church almost my whole life, and also just kind of seen how different people do things, is that there is a level of, hey, we are church, we want to be better, we want to be sure that we're doing everything short of sin to reach people for Jesus. But there's also the level of, we need to care for the people, because they are made in the image of God. Jesus loves them. He died on the cross for them. And we need to be sure that we're building them up. And often that's where things kind of get lost when you're trying to handle the tension between the two. And I've seen so often, I don't know if this is something that you would say is true to your own experience, where it's people will treat you on staff however they want, because they want to get this outcome that will make the church more appealing. So there's a level of, oh, we're having more people come to Jesus. So however, I'm treating the members of my staff or volunteers is justified. Have you had to handle the difference between this is abuse that you're doing and this is something I'm being challenged to as a volunteer, as a person on the staff that's made to help me grow and for the sake of the kingdom? How do you differentiate between those two? Yeah. Well, I think abuse, abuse in any form withdraws personhood in some or agency, or it removes power that we each individually have as human beings. We have this God distributed power. I mean, in the beginning, you know, God told us to exercise dominion, to be fruitful. So we have in our own spheres, in our in our own plots of Eden, we have these lots that we get to exercise dominion in and to steward well. We're all to be stewards of the kingdom. We all get to be a part of that. So we have this intrinsic, valuable, beautiful power that we all get to exercise as members of God's kingdom. And I think abuse happens when someone starts removing power from others and we start taking away, we start taking away agency. We don't give them these beautiful plots of of Eden to steward, we actually start using people to grow our own plot. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I think we actually start, you, it, it's not about the, the personhood anymore. You start looking at the person as a cog in the machine at their utility. And you think how, not how can I care for them, but how can I use them and their gifts to perpetuate something that I want to grow of my own. And that own little thing is not the kingdom of God, but our own little kingdoms. And so if we're building the kingdom of God, we give everyone their own intrinsic ability to contribute in the ways that God has gifted and called them. But if we're building our own kingdoms, then what's going to happen is we're going to start using people and dehumanizing people to build the kingdom that we want in our own name. And so I think being pushed to grow, I, I want to be pushed to grow to build the kingdom of God. And honestly, I think my story has pushed me to grow. I wouldn't be doing this today if I hadn't been kind of thrown out into my own wilderness. And that that was not a growth that I wanted. Honestly, that was not wisdom I wanted. I wanted I you know, plan A was just living and dying within our local church. And I think being pushed to grow is to see something and to be faithful with what's in front of you. But being faithful always means valuing each and every single person that Christ finds beloved. And I think abuse happens whenever you start removing that belovedness from a person. And if anything, if we're encouraging a person to grow, we should always rem remind them that as they grow, they are beloved. And I don't think that that is something that is not always a part of the message when we're encouraging or challenging people to grow. 
Um, and when people are challenged to grow, they should be a part of that process. They're, we should be, be encouraging their own discernment and wisdom. Um, but that means letting them operate in the God-given power that they have. And that's often the first thing that's taken away in abuse is you know, intrinsic power. That is so profound. I don't know if I've ever heard it shared that way, but that is precisely the way that we should see that. And I think that also goes for anybody listening that's either a part of a church or any organization where they feel like, no, power is being taken away from me. And therefore, perhaps I should be seeing this in a different light other than, well, you know, we are on a mission and we all have to do our best. going to get back into this conversation in a moment, but I do want to let you know that I have a Patreon page for as low as $1 a month. That's right. Four quarters. You can help continue these conversations that you are hearing today. And as a thank you, I'm going to be releasing a bunch of bonus content on Patreon. For instance, there was some pastor name dropping that happened during this conversation, along with some other questions that I asked tonight that didn't make the final cut. You can hear the full version with those pastors on Patreon. You can also check out the video version of this conversation on Patreon. And I will be releasing my commentary, how I feel about this conversation that we had on Patreon. All of that is there for you, all for as low as $1 a month. Check it out for yourself. I'll put a link in the show notes. But right now, let's get back into this conversation with Janai Ahmed. I, I I do believe this is also just something that not only are we discussing, but the world seems to be diving into at a deeper level. Because at the time of this recording, the Hillsong documentary has been released. Brian Houston has stepped down. Uh, shortly before that, we had the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Have you watched or um, seen or heard any of this content? I so I'm very familiar with Hillsong. I've not seen the documentary that's come out and. Um, I've also, uh, I'm very aware of the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast. I believe that came out the summer of 2021. Um, and yes, I'm very aware of that coming to light. Um, I haven't seen the Hillsong documentary and I don't know if I will. Um, Mm. I, I don't know if, uh, stuff like that. I, I also, I kind of wonder who is that made for? Because sometimes when you've lived it, you don't need to see it again, or you don't need to relive. Um, it's it's sometimes too triggering. Uh, for the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, I did listen to some of the podcast. I think I listened to the first half of the episodes. And in the beginning, it was very affirming because I came out of the network that Mark Driscoll helped found. And it was very affirming of yes, this was my experience. And not only was that rooted within Mars Hill, but it the foundation of Acts 29 itself is kind of rooted in a lot of these things. And so it was very affirming for a while. But at some point, it uh, took a turn. And I realized this is no longer helpful for me to listen. It's almost like doing a postmortem on something that I need. It, it was kind of like re-breaking the bones again. And I really just wanted healing. And so I couldn't heal if I was constantly letting the scabs be ripped off. And so I realized that stuff like the Hillsong documentary and the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, those things are out there to help maybe bring awareness to people who aren't very aware, but I'm already well aware of all of this happening. And so I am glad that that stuff exists to kind of shed a light or kind of unveil what's happening within the American evangelical church and what's, or even I guess Hillsong is global. Um, But I don't think it's necessarily helpful for victims or survivors who want to move forward in healing because it it is very triggering and it it can, um, it can just bring up things that maybe you're, 
you don't need to think about right now and in this moment. So I, I usually tell people who have lived stuff like this, like approach those things very cautiously and tenderly and mindfully. And if it's too much, you can turn it off. And so, yeah, I think this conversation's timely. I think stuff like that, the content like that is not necessarily for um, everyone all at once. And at the same time, I think you have to approach it very intentionally and mindfully. I think you're saying something that's actually really important. I think we need to be able to understand when to say no. I think we need to not just say, because it's very easy, especially in the age that we're at to get the, it's kind of cliche now, but the FOMO of, oh, did you hear about this? Are you listening to this? And oftentimes there's things that aren't helpful. I actually remember when um, in 2020, after the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery situation, uh, I believe it was Elijah Blake when there was footage of that. I just kind of had to make the decision. I can't watch it. Uh, I can't. I can't see another black person be hurt that way and then have to process all of the negative emotions that comes with that because I'm also I but to your point I'm very well aware of there are some injustices and there are some systematic things that are in place that needs to be addressed. And I'm also well aware that I'm trying to navigate and process that as not only a black man, but as someone who's married to a black woman who's raising a black son. And the idea of like, oh, did you hear about this? You should whatever. It's kind of like I'll, I'll get the cliff notes of it so I can have an understanding of what the conversation is. But. To me, I have to say no to watching more footage and allowing that to be something that triggers me again. And I also think you bring up a great point because there needs to be a level of what is this for? And I think for a lot of people, there was a sense of like, I had no idea these things were happening. And because I am aware of these things, now I'm going to take action. I've specifically as a pastor needed to be mindful of, oh, like, this is how certain volunteers feel. This is how certain perceptions can be um, about certain types of uh, behaviors and stuff. And I will say the Hillsong documentary, I, I, I've uh, consumed both uh, pieces of content. The Hillsong documentary definitely seemed like it had an axe to grind with church period because there were a few times yeah. where certain things were mentioned. And I was kind of like. Yeah, I think you just have a negative view of the gospel. I think you're I think you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, not necessarily um, addressing the actual issues. But there was a level of, hey, I think we need to be kind of mindful that there are some things here that we need to not only be aware of um, as a society, but things that we need to improve upon as as the church. And something that also kind of got popular. I think it was the time where the information got out about Carl Lentz and the whole controversy with that mm -hmm. back in November of 2020, there was somebody that was going around with the slogan, make pastors uncool again. And I'm curious yeah. for you, especially as someone that's in the Bible belt, like, I feel like you see it all. You got the people with the snakes and the scorpions in service. And then you have the people that are kind of like the cream of the crop. Some of the largest churches in the country, all uh, just within blocks of each other. Um, how do you feel about that statement in light of everything you've been through and have had to help people now? Yeah. Um, make pastors uncool again. Um, for one thing, I, maybe it's my personality. I don't know. Like, but why does anything have to be cool? Like I, I, but I also was not a cool kid in school. So I'm like, I kind of rejected the idea that anything needed to be cool to begin with. Um, I think the real question is, is like, like, what happened to faithfulness and what, why did this faithful and beautiful thing become this performance? And I think that's what's happened is we've taken like these sacraments and the, like the variety of ways that we can display the sacraments. And instead we've added, you know, these cool aspects to make it more palatable to people, to make it seem more cool. Um, and I think some of the coolest pastors I know are the least trendy people in the world. Like they, uh, you know, wear clothes that don't match. I'm thinking of this one particular pastor who I know he's in um, his late fifties and he's just a quiet, humble, he's not somebody that people would flock to as a very cool pastor, but he has had the kindest and most humble heart. I, I, I would say, you know, cool as an argument 
uh, a basis to an argument I would like almost reject. But I, I would say like, you know, let's, let's make church more humble and faithful and gentle and meek. And it, it shouldn't be this extravaganza. It shouldn't be comparable, comparable to, you know, Barnum and Bailey's circus at all. And I think that's what's happened is we've, we've tried to entertain people rather than form them and disciple them. Um, and we think if we can just capture their attention, um, then our empire can grow when really, if we want to build the kingdom, we need to capture their hearts. And I don't think that's the same thing, but it's, it kind of looks like the same thing when we use the same language. And so it gets super shrouded and you kind of don't know what the main point is. But if the main point is a person who is on stage and not the people to whom he's trying to, or should be ministering to and caring for, then we've, we've gone off the track somewhere. And so, yeah, I would say if cool is something you're looking for, sure, you'll find it. But I, I would question whether it's faithful. Um, But I think that there are a lot of uncool churches too, who are also missing the faithful mark as well. So I, I would really say the, the metric should be faithfulness and humility and meekness. Um, cool and trendy. If it's a performance, I'm out. Like I don't want to, I, I almost kind of am not interested, but I, I will see and pay attention to how people are being treated. I so love what you said because I, and I feel the conviction of being sure that I don't fall into that trap myself because if is the whole point not to see people have transformation because of this incredible truth of God's love towards man and how easy it can be to just be like, oh, we don't have like these epic lights and this cool presentation when it's kind of like, yeah, I'm sure that might attract people. But I think the pandemic also kind of showed who actually has faith and how much of that was like you like to your point, a form of entertainment. Um and, and I think that's something that a lot of people need to really take hold of, especially right now. Not just like the person that has um, uh, authority over those things on what happens on the stage, because, yes, they are accountable. But I do think that's something that I would almost challenge the person that gets to come to whatever church. Like, is the reason you're in this church because it's actually challenging you, it's it's growing you, it's building you up in community? Or is it like, oh, they just have like the best music, they have, you know, these cool things happening in the lobby. And I'm not against any of those things. I'm a pastor. I seek, I have meetings all the time about, hey, let's have donuts in the hallway this week. Let's do something fun and special. But ultimately, that's not the goal here. And people can find that anywhere else, but we have to be different. We have to have a level of faithfulness, as you said, to to what brought us into this position in the first place. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think, you know, in our pursuit of faith, there's nothing wrong with pursuing excellence. Like I want it, I want it to be excellent and beautiful. It is really the, like a testament to our faith when we pursue beauty and faithfulness. So a lot of the the music and the art and the architecture of a local congregation can attest to those things. Uh, my concern is when it becomes about the beauty and not about who we're beholding and the God that we're beholding. That's when I think, you know, excellence for excellence's sake is, it really does miss the mark, but excellence for or in our pursuit of the Lord. Now that is, I think that is something that can testify to the whole world. I want to stay in the same vein, but also change gears. I want to talk about the person that's listening right now, that they're serving, maybe they're attending, considering serving, whatever their situation is, but they're not on staff. Maybe they are on staff. Why not? What are the red flags of church dysfunction? that all of us should be aware of. I would almost rephrase that and say, you know, every church is dysfunctional. And I think one of the major pushbacks that um, abuse victims and survivors get when they begin telling their story is the first argument almost right out the gate is no church is perfect or all churches are messy. All churches are dysfunctional. And I agree with that. 
Um, so I, I'll, I'll start with that for anyone listening. No church is perfectly functional. There's always going to be some amount as, of dysfunction. Um, and when I think of dysfunction, I think of like, you know, poor communication, you know, poor communication can be um, dysfunctional, just a dysfunctional aspect of being a member of a church. Poor communication isn't inherently abusive. Now, a red flag of what is an abusive or a toxic environment is one that it starts with uh, unquestioned loyalty. Like, it, are, do you want to see people become who they were called and created in being in, in the Lord, like in fostering that growth in them? Or do you want them to assimilate to some model of ministry as an act of loyalty and unquestioned loyalty? Because this, you've made loyalty look like faithfulness. I think that is where I think some things get iffy. And the thing is, so many people want to be loyal to the, to the organization or to the person. The unquestioned loyalty is just really tricky. I would ask, you know, is there a feedback loop? I, I always tell people, can you bring up valid concerns and questions in such a way that it doesn't look like it's a threat to the organization or a threat to someone's leadership? And if they love the family, like they would also love that you are exercising your gift of discernment and helping to make this a more beautiful and more functional community. And so I really do think that a lack of a feedback loop or um, if a if a leader can never be questioned or if his authority can never be challenged or if there's an overemphasis on an, a leader's authority, those are all red flags to me. Um, if people cannot be who they are within a family of believers and instead they are kind of forced into a mold or a shape, that's another thing that raises a red flag within me because that's not faithfulness, that's assimilation. And that's assimilation is another aspect where it's kind of a passive way to withhold the power from people. And it's incredibly insidious because it's so it's not overt. It's very covert. And yeah, assimilation, if they're if they're wanting you to assimilate, that's a red flag as well. So say I'm one of those people and you just shared what you shared. And now I'm like, oh, shoot, that's me. That's. That's where I'm at. Is there any way to like navigate that situation where you don't get hurt? Or is it kind of like a rip a bandaid situation? Like, all right, this is, this is just what it is because there's a reality of like, if you're in an abusive relationship, like with another person, there's no, there's no reconcilable, easy way to walk out of it. Like it's going to get ugly. Um, but is that something that somebody should be, prepared to do? Or is there any tips on how you believe to best navigate that? I, I think you mentioned something earlier about, you know, the FOMO and figuring out where your boundaries are. I, I really think before you ever engage in that conversation, you need to figure out where the boundaries are for you as a person. So wh where, where is the line for me? And whenever that line gets crossed and, and my value as a human being has been, you know, denied. Like you can, you need to draw the boundaries for yourself um, so that, you know, like these are the terms of the argument that I'm willing, that this is how I'm willing to engage in this conflict and this argument. And if, I mean, the thing is, is I, even I fell victim to this. I believed like, well, I'll change the system. I'll, I, I crossed my own boundary and I crossed my own capacity to where I was depleting my capacity thinking if I just try harder, they'll hear me. Or if I just speak up more, they'll hear me. And so I poured more of myself into this conflict thinking I'm going to be the one to change it. And not only did that not happen, it hurt me more. So really what I should have done was drawn the the lines and the boundaries for myself to know like, this is what I need to keep myself rested, to keep myself faithful and to make sure that like, I'm not depleting what I don't have. I, and I need to withdraw. Sometimes you need to engage in the conflict or in the argument to help facilitate change. And then sometimes you need to kind of withdraw and kind of rest, recharge. And I, I did not draw those boundaries for myself. And so I was constantly depleting my energy. So I would say for anyone who's seeing these red flags or they've, they've seen the concerns, they need to figure out where the boundaries are and where their no is. And 
if that no is constantly um, disrespected or um, dishonored, or if your personhood is just withdrawn from you, like, you know, that that's your no, and that you know that you have, you still hold the power within yourself to leave this system and to leave this particular community. Like you're an adult, you can go and find something more beautiful and holy, but you need to know, like, what are those things? What do I want? What do I want this church to be? Um, And if they constantly come back to you and say, like, we're not that church, well, they've given you the answer that you need and you need to make the hard decision. I mean, it's a hard decision to leave a community that you, or that most people have invested in for years. And uh, you have to prepare yourself for that. And that's not an easy decision. And that's why I don't, I don't, um, I don't shame people for not leaving the system because I understand how hard it is. And I, I don't want them to assume that the only faithful thing to do is flee. Sometimes God calls people to stay. And so I would like actively encourage people to discern on their own. Do you have capacity to constantly engage in this battle? If not, um, then maybe you need to consider withdrawing and going somewhere else, somewhere more life-giving, somewhere where you actually see and trust the sovereignty of the Lord. Um, but I don't think that there is a, a prescription for everyone, but I think it takes a lot of wisdom and discernment, but it starts with your own boundaries mm-hmm. as well. You know, speaking of boundaries, you did a video that one of the first videos I ever saw of you, it rubbed me the wrong way only because it was like a TikTok type of video. And I was like, I need to know more context. So I want to talk about that now. Because you you brought up, and I probably need to watch it again. Maybe I watched it and I didn't listen to the whole thing the the way you said it and whatever. But that's the that's the beauty and the curse of being on social media. You can't get all of your thoughts in sixty seconds or however long. But you talked about how we need to have seasons of rest and volunteering, and how don't feel coerced or pushed to serve if you don't feel like you have the capacity. And I would love for you to expound on that because this is, this is the metric that I have. There are, there are times when there's needs to be a season of rest, but I've also heard that many times it's because we don't have a rhythm of Sabbath that we burn out. And the season of rest is more of like, I'm just trying to, you know, pick, pick the pieces up of, of what happened in that situation. Can you clarify what you said and, and help me see, help me see what you were trying to say? Because I do believe we're on the same page. And, and, and I think it was more of how I heard it as opposed to what you were saying. Yeah. So I will say like, in terms of volunteering, I think that that was a TikTok or a, a reel that I, and I, Instagram reel that I made uh, several months ago. And it was kind of in response to a lot of people who were connecting with me and saying, I never worked on church staff, but I was a volunteer. And I usually volunteered every single week. And whenever I asked them to volunteer less because, you know, of some other um, difficult season, they wanted to take a break and they realized they were feeling guilted into continuing to serve. And I wanted to respond to them and say, look, you can say no, like your no is your no. Um, if a church is built on you burning yourself out, then that's that's not faithfulness. You should be allowed to rest. And so I think rest is... Um, I think two things about rest. I think there should be physical rest um, where you actually can do something life-giving and your body can rest and your mind can rest. But I also believe that we are people of rest. And so I don't think rest is necessarily idle. Um, One of the uh, examples that I like using is that, you know, people who garden, gardening is actually really hard work. I don't know if you've ever gardened. I'm not a good gardener, so I don't do gardening. But one of the things that I've talked to so many people about is how restful they believe gardening is. It's because their mind is engaged in a different way. They get to work with their hands. It's hard work, but it's so restful for so many people because it's life-giving. You are actually, you know, planting life in the ground. And I think there should be rhythms of rest within our lives that contribute to fostering like a life-giving model of ministry. But 
and this is where I kind of delineate the, the volunteer aspect. Some of our programs and our models of ministry actually do rely on the burnout of people. We need more people to make this work. Well, why do you need more people to make it work? And is what you're doing actually life-giving to people? Is it giving life to other people? Um, and if so, uh, then great. But why are these people being burned out? Or why aren't? Why do our volunteers feel so uncared for? I think in anything that we do in ministry, both the volunteers and those who are the recipients of the service should be ministered to. And I think our volunteering should be a part of our ministry and our how we sacrifice and how we give. Um, but I should ne- I never believe that it should be depleting of our own value and of our own. If you, if you have to be coerced and guilted into volunteering and serving, I think that that is some that is a ministry that's not caring for everyone who is a part of the ministry. And so that's when I start to think volunteering and the volunteers in our ministry may be abused and guilted to perpetuate and for their utility. We're using them as a body to have some sort of ratio count rather than valuing them and their gifts and how they teach or how they do whatever they're volunteering for. And so um, I think there are so many people who volunteer and when they volunteer in a particular um, avenue, it is restful for them. Like they are, maybe they're, um, you know, typically an engineer in the private world throughout the work week. But when they get to come to church and teach the Bible, it's actually restful and rejuvenating and life-giving for them. But it takes a lot of discernment to determine, you know, is your volunteer uh, finding their work life-giving? And if not, maybe that's the season, you know, like we are just trying to care for and minister, I don't know, maybe all these children. But if your volunteers are burning out, you need to kind of instill within your uh, guidelines of volunteering or like a season of Sabbath for them. You know, you volunteer so many times a month and that's it. That's where we draw the line. And I think what happens is our ministry models become so urgent. Like we, I call it the tyranny of the urgent. I think a lot of people call it the tyranny of the urgent. Some things are made to be so urgent that aren't actually urgent, but because we can call on people and guilt people into fulfilling these roles, um, we can make this urgent thing happen. And I, I think that that's just so wounding when other, the volunteers need, need to be cared for as well. And you don't know what's happening in their lives outside of ministry. Some people keep the very tender parts of them hidden as they are working within their church because they don't know if they can disclose what's happening. And so I just think we need to be really mindful about how we utilize people's time. And are we utilizing them and um, or you know pushing them to grow? Uh, like we mentioned earlier, or are we using them and coercing them and guilting them? I think those are two d- very different things, but they start to get very murky um, in our models of ministry. Man, that's so good. I really appreciate you clarifying that. And I really am also just challenged by that. We, I had somebody on the show a while back ago, his name was Roy Dockery, and he mentioned how many churches treat volunteers like furniture, where it's like, all right, so you want to serve here and they just get put in this corner. You be here. You you serve the people, have, be sat on whatever and like never to be talked to again, whatever, just function as that. And he even brought up, I was like, you know, what if that person says, I want to do a different ministry or I, I no longer don't, I, I'm not sure if this is fulfilling for me. And often they can be met with resistance And I think there's also something to be said, because I do believe serving is worship. But to your point, like, is it still worship if it's draining me and I'm not because I don't I've never had I've never had a time of worship where I walked away and felt like I actually didn't enjoy that time of worship. I actually felt bullied or like whatever in, in that time of worship. And maybe that happens. I know sometimes people can coerce you into saying things and having you know, what could be like a supernatural thing. So I don't want to say like that doesn't happen, but I do want to be clear that if, if serving is supposed to be worshipful, then there needs to be a rejuvenation that happens. There needs to be a level of like, man, this, what, whether it was challenging to me or what have you was something that did something for my soul that makes me excited to do it again. 
And I think that's the, that's the big difference. Uh, especially when I think about, again, so many people that feel like they've been abused and, um, dealing with those difficult things. Yeah. I think, I think the, the, the difference is, is like, you know, in volunteering, we have an opportunity to pour out what's been poured into us. I think when it gets unrestful or when it becomes unrestful is when our volunteers no longer feel poured into, like they're pouring out something they don't have. And I think that's where, that's where the line is drawn is, do they have anything of themselves that they can give? If not, then you need to, we need to let them have a moment to withdraw and to receive from the Lord. If they're not receiving in this way and respect that and respect and trust that the Lord will, will fill them back up again. And when they can, they will give of themselves. Um, yeah, I think it, it's a, it really is a sensitive issue and it, and it is supposed to be self-sacrificial. Um, but you know, there's a difference between sacrificing and being self-sacrificial and being used. And I think that's how a lot of volunteers feel is they just feel used. They feel like furniture. They feel like they're being sat on. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about you, Janai, is you truly have navigated a really difficult situation and season, but with your faith intact. And that's not everybody's story. A lot of people end up walking away from faith, walking away from Christianity because of an abusive experience being let down. And I'm curious for you, what would you say to the person that's listening right now that may be in that place where they're, they might be considering walking away from all this because of either church abuse, neglect, whatever the situation may be? How would you encourage them in the midst of this journey that they're on? I mean, one, I'd say I almost walked away. Like I, it was almost easier for me to choose to walk away. And I, I don't at all guilt them. And that's what I have such a problem with today is when people almost shame people for walking away. And when, you know, pastors or influential people don't understand why they're walking away. And it's because of of such a wound. It's just, and it's not healed and no one's entered in to help foster that healing. Like I almost, it was almost easier for me to walk away. And the only reason I didn't is because I know something good and beautiful was in there and I needed to figure out, uh, part of me did walk away. I just learned what I was walking away from. I was walking away from models of ministry that used people. I was walking away from models of ministry that talked about something beautiful, beautiful. They talked about something beautiful, but they didn't practice something beautiful. I walked away from a ministry that preached the truth, but they didn't practice the truth. And so I needed to know specifically, yes, I'm walking away, but this is what I'm walking away from. And then eventually, whenever I started walking, I realized what I'm walking toward is actually still Jesus. He is still the root of what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. And I had so intrinsically woven two aspects of, you know, something that I thought Jesus was in, but he really wasn't there. And I thought he was, you know, in the midst of it. And sure, he was a part of the work of the ministry at the church I was a part of. And I just realized that, you know, my journey with that church ended. And I walked away from that church, but that doesn't mean I walked away from the Lord. I actually walked closer to him. And so I would say that um, for anyone who doesn't know how to keep their faith intact, um, it's okay if you fall apart. And you don't hear that message very often um, from those in ministry and in in positions of, you know, authority that it's okay to fall apart. I think it's okay to fall apart because I think what you're experiencing is grief. And it's grief in a way that we don't really understand. We usually understand grief as, you know, the loss of a person or a relationship or of a of something. But you're you're losing a lot when you walk away from a community. It, it feels like you've been crippled to some degree. Like I've lost like the use of my arms or my legs or, you know, I was a part of this body and no, now I feel cut off. You are grieving. And so I think whenever you see anyone, you know, in grief or anytime grief is um, shown to us, you know, on a TV screen, or when we see someone in grief, they are falling apart. They're not trying to hold it together. And I would say like, if you feel like you need to walk away and fall apart and grieve, then do it. Actually, most of the Psalms are Psalms of lament and of grief. Um, Sometimes that grief looks like anger, 
And so, I mean, I think uh, there's so many Psalms that I could come to mind about like someone just being angry at like, Lord, make this right. Let yourself be angry. And I think so often we're trained to be polite in our faith or to be politically correct in our faith. You need to, you know, have an element of decorum and composure. But the psalm, people lost their, like they lost their minds in the Psalms. And I think that's okay too. There is space for that. And you, if you want to be emotionally healthy later, you need to learn how to work through your emotions now and to give your space to give yourself space to work through those emotions. And so I would say, lean into it lean into it um, and know what you're walking away from. Like I'm walking away from these elements of church. Um, Maybe you don't know what you're walking toward later, but I hope um, again, I mean, I hope with everything in me that you're walking toward God. And I think that's my story. I did. I was walking toward something. I didn't know what I was walking toward. I knew what I, what I was walking away from. And it found, I found later that like I was walking toward the person and work of Christ Um, and that is, that's hard. It's a hard road to walk. It's not an easy road to walk. And, um, I would say, don't make it look prettier than it needs to be. It it's, it's not a road that I wish on anyone, but when you're on it, don't, don't whitewash it. Don't make it look more, more grand and beautiful than it is. I don't wish this road on anyone, but, um, I know you can get through it. So, yeah, I just affirm any all the anger, the grief, um, the rage. Um, I affirm all of that and let yourself feel it because the place you will be a few years down the road will be a much more healthy place because you know how to better engage your emotions and your grief in what you've lost. That is so powerful. And I really appreciate you just sharing from your heart how we can process that type of difficult situation. We're out of time. What's next for Janai? You have so much to offer this world. How can people keep up with uh, what you got going on? Tell us. Yeah. So most of what I'm doing is just connecting with people. Uh, Anything that I write or say or do I'm not really preaching to people that don't want to hear me. And I don't, I don't even want to be preaching anyway. I just want to be a friend to people who are walking a hard road because that's often all like all they left behind were their friends. And so I want to come alongside them and say, I get it. I get it. And you are still welcome to the table. No matter how many people pushed you away from the table, you're still welcome. And that Christ still, still prepares that seat for you. And so my work is really just connecting with people and building a community of people who uh, want to re-engage their faith again and I, and I know that like, that doesn't look the same for everyone. Um, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm constantly connecting with people on social media. So I'm, I'm more lively on Instagram, but I'm on uh, Twitter as well. Um, I'm also actively hosting an online private community called the Wilderness Forum. And that's usually for people who have left churches or traditional church spaces who don't have a community who are processing these questions in a safe space. Um, It's not always safe to disclose your story publicly, like on Instagram or Twitter or on a podcast. Um, But I've fostered a a community where we can kind of ask each other questions without anyone kind of blowing the whistle publicly. Um, Yeah, and I have hopes in the future to kind of cultivate that into an online editorial space that just kind of creating a whole network of community minded people who are trying to navigate these situations really well. Um, and it takes a lot of fundraising too. So I'm in the middle of fundraising to kind of help all of these projects come to fruition. But if anyone would love to connect with me, I'm lively on um, Instagram and Twitter, and I'm always answering my messages and emails. So I'd be glad to connect with anyone. Janai, you are truly doing God's work. And I believe that you will not only get the support you need, but there's truly a treasure in heaven for how you've helped people heal and process and draw closer to God, even in the midst of the failures of us as human beings. Janai, thank you so much for this conversation. Stephen, thank you. And there you have it, my conversation with Janai Ahmed. Janai, thank you so much for the important work that you are doing. I will say it again. 
This isn't something that people want to have happen to them. But the way God has used it in your life is truly inspirational. So if you want more information about Janiyah or get in contact with some of the resources that she has, I'll put all of that in the show notes. And I also hope that you will join me again next time on the next episode of the Humble and Honest Podcast.